We are bringing truths to the forefront, creating foundations, not only for those of us who've believed a long time, but also for our children and children's children that may not have had the raising that we've had. The foundational truths that were given to us by our parents, now it's our job to pass it along to them. Today we're going to focus upon, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, conceived, born, and suffered. I believe these are truths that we must believe in order to be a follower of Jesus Christ. I don't know the original writer of this next little thing that I want to share with you, but it blessed me this week, and I hope it's a blessing to you. To the artist, he is the one that is altogether lovely. To the architect, he is the chief cornerstone. To the astronomer, he is the son of righteousness. To the baker, he is the bread of life. To the banker, he is the hidden treasure. To the builder, he is the sure foundation. To the carpenter, he is the door. To the doctor, he is the great physician. To the educator, he is the new and living way. To the farmer, he is the sower and the Lord of the harvest. Part of my responsibility as your pastor is to bring truth to us in order for us to prayerfully consider what sets us free. That we are no longer slaves, we are no longer in bondage because of the blood of Jesus Christ that sets us free because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. But yet you go on the internet, you hit social media, and you type in Jesus Christ, you'll get all kinds of crazy ideas. Which leads us to the question of Matthew 22 and 42. What do you think about Christ? What do you think about him? When you hear that name in a song, when you hear that name in a lesson, when you hear that name in a sermon, what do you think about Christ? Well, our objective today is to be reminded of three key areas that we must believe in order to be saved. First of all, the divine conception, the virgin birth, and his vicarious suffering. He took our place. If you were here last week, we focused upon, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Today and next week, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, and suffered under Pontius Pilate. We are living in a day of what we call in the pastorate, moral relativism. It is a day that says, well, if I believe this for me, then it's the truth and then it's right. It may not be that way for you, but it's that way for me. We need to once again commit ourselves to theological orthodoxy and doctrinal fidelity because they're very important in the world in which we live, especially for a generation yet to come. Because there are absolute truths. We find them in the Word of God. They are the Word of God. We find them in Jesus. They are Jesus. 
So regardless of the society, regardless of the context or our standpoint, you and I can go back to God's Word and clarify. Just because you think it, feel it, or want it to be true does not make it true. You see, liberal theologians have proposed some very outlandish ideas thinking of the early church's invention of the deity of Jesus Christ. You see, to some, the virgin birth is what's called an entrance myth. And to others, it goes along with the resurrection, the exit myth. So what do you and I believe about Jesus? We want to look at three areas today. The first one is very simple, conceived by the Holy Spirit. We've been taught this since we were children. We were taught it in Sunday school. It was taught from flannel graph to me when I was at Shanghai and Mount Pisgah when I was but a child. So why do we believe that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit? You weren't there. I wasn't there. It's whether or not we believe the Bible. Luke chapter 1, a familiar text that we always read during the holidays, especially at Christmas time. But here we are on the last Sunday of January. The Bible says, and the angel Gabriel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. If you were here this past holiday, I actually brought up some significant points about this young teenage girl who now, having found favor with God, was going to be used as a vessel for the Son of God to be born. Can you imagine the fear? Not just about being overshadowed by the Holy Spirit and conceiving the Son of God, but this angel comes out of the blue speaking to you and giving you this prophecy. Verse 34 and 35, and Mary responds to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? You see, Mary and Joseph knew about biology. Just as you and I know and understand that it requires intimacy and sexual relations in order to have a baby. But then the angel answers her and says, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Oh, it's an amazing truth to me that God knows us not only in the womb, but even before we are born. Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 5 indicates this. It says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Now, you and I may not be appointed a prophet to the nations, but yet we understand that before we even formed in the womb, God knows us. Hundreds of thousands of people marched in Washington, D.C. yesterday, marching for life. That God knows us not only in the womb, but before the womb. So the Apostles' Creed includes this divine conception by the Holy Spirit because it rests at the foundation of a lot of other crucial doctrines. Because without divine conception by the Holy Spirit, then Jesus Christ is not God. If the Holy Spirit did not conceive Christ, then his daddy must be Joseph. Now those of us who've been in church any length of time know that she was 
a virgin and the Holy Spirit came upon her. But there's a lot of things being taught today that's trying to distort and tear down this great doctrine of our faith. So we must adhere to a theological orthodoxy. A fidelity, if you will, of what does the Bible say. Not, not what a book about the Bible says, but what does the Word of God teach. Not only conceived by the Holy Spirit, but born of the Virgin Mary. Because without the virgin birth of Jesus, the gospel does not provide salvation. It would have just been like me being born on April the 28th, 1964. It would be like any one of us being born. If the virgin birth is a lie, then Jesus could never reverse the curse and save sinners. It means that today you and I are in our sin and when we die, we go to hell. If Jesus Christ was not conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Now this is a text of scripture that's been written in various language, originally given to us in the Greek, but yet... Over time, sometimes things can become watered down to the point of, I don't even know what I believe anymore. The early church fathers in the first century who actually lived during the time of Jesus and right after the time of Jesus, guys like Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Tertullian, Basil, Jerome, and Augustine, every one of these early church fathers wrote about the importance of the virgin birth. They understood that without a proper understanding of Jesus in the womb, you could never understand the significance of Christ on the cross. Because it would just be like me hanging on a cross, or another Hebrew, or someone else hanging on a cross. But no, because of the process and the events of time and history, it happened the way that it happened according to the word. The Bible declares that Jesus was as much God as if he had never been man, and he was as much man as if he had never been God. Notice this statement with me. In the Old Testament, we have man made in the image of God, Genesis 1 and 27. That God made male and female, God made them and made them in his image. And in the New Testament, we see God made in the image of man, Luke chapter 2 and verse 7. A baby of all things. He didn't come as a king riding in on a milky white stallion with, a, with an army trailing behind him. No, he was born as an innocent, defenseless child. This is the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Matthew actually gives scriptural support of this virginal conception Matthew chapter 1 verse 18, it says, Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way, that when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, that means before they had relations, before they came together in the flesh, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Matthew 1 and 18 actually fulfills a prophecy that was written 800 years before Jesus was born. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And in Hebrew, the name Emmanuel means God with us. Two chapters later, we see Isaiah writing, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Remember, Christ was born 
when the Roman Empire was in control of all of Israel and Palestine. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And he of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. The millennial reign one day. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now just a few verses later, Matthew concludes with this. Mary will bear a son, and you shall call his name Yeshua, Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Once again, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, I've told you before numerous times that I love history. So understood in the light of salvation history, these gospel accounts in Matthew satisfy the Old Testament prophecy and the yearning for a Savior. Do you realize that from the book of Genesis all the way through the 39 books of the Old Testament, they were looking for Messiah. They, they were looking for the one who would come and rule and reign. There was a promise made in Genesis 3.15. We call it today in theological circles the Proto-Evangelium. It's a $3 theological word that simply means first gospel. It's really the first time in this third chapter of the Bible where we find the gospel presented. Genesis 3 and 15 simply states that I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel what is it referring to? Well, Paul explained it in Romans chapter 16, verse 20, when he said, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So we realize that we have victory in Jesus Christ based upon what God's word teaches. And it all started in the early verses and chapters of the first book of the Bible. Fully God, yet fully man, Born of the Holy Spirit through a human agency, Mary. That Jesus Christ offers salvation to the world as a perfect representative on that behalf of humanity. So if you're here this morning and you deny the virgin birth, despite the fact that the gospels assert it, you're compromising the authority of scripture. So I encourage you, study God's word. Find the truth that can set you free from the entanglements of intellectualism. The entanglements of having a degree hanging on the wall and you think you're smarter than God. I would challenge you to do these things. So lastly this morning, and I would encourage you to begin to examine yourself according to 1 Corinthians 11 before the table. It says that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. Christians sometimes forget that Jesus just didn't die for us. Jesus also suffered for us. I'm like many of you, I don't like pain. The first sign of a headache, the, the first sign of a body ache. And as many of us know, the older you get, the more those body aches that come. And we do our best to mask the pain. We, we take uh, supplements for our joints and make sure that we can still work out and all those kind of things. But still, there are the aches and pains. That's not what I'm talking about, suffering. I'm talking about giving your back to someone who has a cat of nine tails, leather strips with, 
with chips of uh, a bone and, and, and metal attached to it and ripping your flesh from your body. That's the suffering I'm talking about. Jesus Christ went through all of that for us so that we wouldn't have to. So that we wouldn't have to walk through that valley of the shadow. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 1, 2, 3, and 4 actually give us a simple overview from 30,000 feet what the gospel is. It says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved, that if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you've believed it in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Notice the phrase, in accordance with the scriptures. Where do we find such a story of redemption? This is not a work of fiction or Greek mythology. No, this is the word of God that speaks to the powerful testimony of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. But sometimes we forget what took place in the life of Jesus before he died. We call it suffering. Suffering. Once again, Isaiah prophesied what the Messiah would endure before he finally is hung on the tree. Isaiah 53 records it. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds... We are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Jesus Christ, our Lord, was innocent. But he suffered. The innocent remains crucial to the gospel. Because the requirement of a perfect spotless lamb was satisfied in the suffering and death of Jesus Christ. It would not have been satisfied if I had died for you. It would not have been satisfied if you had died for me. But only the suffering and death of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 9 teaches us, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come... Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places. Jesus only had to die on the cross one time, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, which was a foreshadowing, but by means of his own blood, which we're about to celebrate through the Lord's table in just a moment, thus securing an eternal redemption. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus Christ. And it's because he was innocent. It was because he was the spotless lamb. It was because he was birthed, yes, of a human position in Mary. But his father was the Holy Spirit. That is the truth that sets us free. No matter where we are in life. Peter says it this way. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you. Leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Let me hit the pause button for just a moment. I've been taught my whole life, somebody pushes you, you push back. 
Don't you be a doormat for anyone. And pretty much over the course of my journey, I've never been bullied. I never let someone, because they were bigger, stronger, faster than me, look down on me. But not Jesus. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. There was no revenge. He didn't say, because you have done this to me, I'm, I'm going to be evil back towards you. No, he says, I'm going to die for you. I'm going to liberate you. I'm going to set you free from the evil that you do against me. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Whew. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And by his wounds, you have been healed. That word healed means you've been made whole. I was made whole a number of years ago when I accepted Christ. When you accepted Christ, you were made whole. But it cost Jesus every contusion, laceration, perforation, and incision placed upon his body so that you and I could be made whole. Yes, he suffered. And yes, he died. But praise God, on the third day, he rose again. Amen, church. That's why we sing like we sing. That's why we preach like we preach. Let me give you this last verse. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. You know it well. It's been set to music and we sing it here. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. If that's still a little bit cloudy, let me simplify. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin. So that in Jesus... You and I might become the righteousness of God. That's good news, amen? That's why we call the gospel good news. All the bad news is you reject the gospel, there's hell and the lake of fire. But for those of us who accept and receive and repent of our sins and we embrace the good news, the new Jerusalem one day will be our home. Based upon the testimony of the book of Revelation, we call it heaven paradise, any number of names in which you might want to use. So here's our situation today. Where are you in your belief? What do you understand about these great truths of our faith?